And as you see, we'll read together the f- two-thirds of the chapter, reading from verse 1 to verse 29. Mark chapter 9, and reading from verse 1. May the Lord help us to read, hear, and believe the scriptures of truth. Mark 9 and verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain, apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias, that is Elijah, must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. 
And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, And he arose, and when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this evening. It is with the Lord's gracious help that we look to open up the first verse of that chapter. So chapter 9 of Mark and verse 1. And we'll read that again together before we seek the Lord's help in prayer. Mark 9 and verse 1, the text for the preaching of God's word this evening. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, and there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Amen. Let us pray, please. Let us pray. Our loving and Kind heavenly God and Father, we give thee thanks for thy word. We thank thee for speaking to us. That we've had thy word in our hearing and faith cometh by the hearing of the word of God. And it is our prayer and our desire, Lord, that the word would not go out and merely come into one ear and out the other. But Lord, that thy word may be that double-edged sword entering in deeply into every soul and heart. Lord, that we would not just merely have an understanding in the head, but will that work that belief and love in the heart. Help us to understand what thou would say to us personally, that we wouldn't just bide our time until the service is over, but, Lord, that we may understand Will thou give understanding and give help uh, to the youngest and to the oldest, to all in between, that the word may be understood and believed, that Christ will be exalted. And Lord, that the, the sinner may become a saint and that the saint may wax in the knowledge and the love and the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is all thy doing These are thy means, therefore receive all the glory. 
For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we're making now our return to our study of the gospel according to Mark, we open up chapter 9. That's the next uh, place of, in our study. We're confronted with the first verse, which in some ways seems to be a continuation of the, the last uh, five verses of, of chapter 8, and yet it, it does come to us uh, with a slightly different feel, a different angle. Um, no doubt it was part of the same message, but it seems to be pointing to something uh, quite uh, different. Uh, verse 9 then, as we read, uh, verse 1, sorry, as we read it, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And it is a verse which at first sight uh, can come across as somewhat strange and mysterious. What is the Lord referring to? And indeed, there have been many interpretations, I would say even some careless interpretations over the years, um, of, of this particular verse, which are very unsatisfactory. Uh, that have even proposed bizarre and, I would say, superstitious, if not even mythological, uh, conclusions. But on careful consideration of this passage, of this verse actually, and where it sits, just before the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, six days before that, and then the, the, the sermon that the Lord has uh, given about denying self and taking up the cross, but also uh, the further things that he said in that we've looked at before already. But when we come to an understanding which is not only biblical, but it is an understanding that brings great glory to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so let us, with the Lord's help this evening, uh, learn some of the glories uh, concerning the power of Christ's kingdom. The power of Christ's kingdom, which is the title of the message. The power of Christ's kingdom. Firstly, then we see who, whose kingdom this is. Whose kingdom this is. Although well, we have a title of the kingdom here as the kingdom of God, I would say this. Firstly, it is Christ's kingdom. It's the kingdom that belongs to Christ as king. For he is the king. He is king. He has a, a twofold kingship. He is the king of the church and he is king of the world. And we know from Matthew 16 and verse 28, again, these, uh, these verses are, are looking into the future. They're looking at the, uh, at the imminent return of the Son of Man. And Matthew 16 and 28 says, Verily I say unto you, again, this is a verse uh, that we read in a parallel passage in Matthew, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So in the parallel passage, we see that the, that the kingdom of God is claimed by Jesus Christ to be his own kingdom, because, of course, Jesus Christ is God. He is the Son of God, as well as being the Son of Man. So it is Christ's kingdom, 
but we understand from this chapter and also from the parallel verse in Luke 9 and verse 27 again that it is the kingdom of God. But I tell you of a truth there'll be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. Christ is God and Christ is the king of this kingdom. God is the king of the kingdom that he's pointing out. And it is a kingdom that is not an earthly kingdom. It is not an earthly kingdom. Uh, John 18 and verse 36, the Lord makes very clear here and in a few other places. Uh, John 18 and 36, Jesus answered, said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. It doesn't come from here. It is not a kingdom that is established with a palace. It's not a kingdom with a, an earthly army. It doesn't have gold in the bank account. It doesn't uh, establish political relations with earthly powers. It is not from here. It's not from here. And that's why the kingdom of God is often referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Those are not two separate things. As much as the Plymouth Brethren might think so, they are not two separate kingdoms. Careful study and parallel understanding of how Matthew refers to the kingdom of, of, of heaven and how Luke would refer to the kingdom of God, we see that they are used in the same places at the same time to refer to the one kingdom over which Christ is king. So it's a, a kingdom of heaven. It's not from here. It's not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom. And Luke 17 and verse 21 helps us to see that. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, that is look here, look there, for behold the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God, it belongs to Christ and Christ is God and Christ comes down from heaven and, and that's, where the, that's where the kingdom of heaven comes from and that kingdom of heaven is established where? In the hearts of those that believe. So whatever your understanding of the millennium might be, Christ has made it very clear that this kingdom is not an earthly physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And it resides in the heart of those that believe. So we've understood something of whose kingdom this is and what type of kingdom it is. But secondly, who will see this kingdom of God come? Because that's what the Lord is speaking about in this particular verse. So in the previous verses, maybe we should just read some of those previous verses to remind ourselves from verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him, this is the previous chapter, chapter 8. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. 
For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so we've seen there something of the the future coming of Christ in glory. And so that's when we come to verse 1, there are those that will see, well, it must be exactly in that time again. It must be in the future, thousands of years hence. But that's dragging the meaning from one verse into the following. And it doesn't substantiate that. Who will see this kingdom come? As the Lord speaks of it in verse 1. Is he speaking of his second coming? He was in verse 38. But we see also that there's a coming of glory in the following verses, in the Mount of Transfiguration. Is is that what the Lord is pointing to? We'll examine that in detail when we come to our third point. But who are these people that will witness it? Who are the people that will, will see this coming in glory? Well, Very simply, some of those who were standing around the Lord Jesus at that moment and and hearing him speak these words, hearing him speak of, 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 of the things that they must do to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. That they would forsake, not him, but they would forsake themselves and follow him. But those who were listening... Who are they? Well, disciples, the disciples certainly. Are there other people standing around? If we look at the broader context, there were certain other people uh, there also. Because it says in verse 34, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also. So that gives us the group of people concerning some of whom would still be alive when Christ, or they will see the kingdom of God come with power. Some would not yet see the kingdom come. Some would not be witnesses of what these, the, the, this matter is that the Lord speaks of. Some would die beforehand. We certainly can say we know one who would die before uh, the Lord, um, as he's referring to, that the kingdom of God would come with power, Judas. Judas would kill himself not long after he betrayed Jesus Christ. But what we also know from the Scriptures is that the high priest and certain members of the Sanhedrin would also witness something of Christ's power. They would also witness something of the kingdom of God come with power because he says this to them in Mark 14. Again, using very similar languages, he speaks uh, to uh, the high priest. And uh, Mark 14, verses 60 to 62. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he, that is Christ, held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Again, that's language that's would even give us an idea. Well, well, that seems to put us again far in the future. The details of that particular verse we hope to look at as the Lord's pleased to grant that we get to chapter 14. So we're not going to open up that verse now. But again, similar language that the Lord says of those living in that time 2,000 years ago would witness something. So there's clearly no room, I would suggest, for any mythological or even Roman Catholic superstition that there is a a disciple still around somewhere or somebody who was a disciple of a disciple 2,000 years later still living in a cave waiting to see the Lord Jesus Christ come again. That's not even the language of the Bible to speak like that. But let us briefly compare another attempt at starting such a myth that we find in the Scriptures. In John 21 and verses 20 to 23, we see almost the... Well, we do. We witness the beginning of a a myth that is refuted by the Scriptures, refuted by Christ. Again, a, a similar idea. John 21 verses 20 to 23. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? That is John. Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? So actually we see that in the early church there was that rumor that John uh, the divine would, would never die, but he would remain until Christ returned. But Christ refutes that also. So we must be careful as we read and understand, because if there's one thing in the church and there's one thing, one part of theology in the church that is, um, is so diverse and, and actually so complicated more than the Bible would even make it, it is the end times and what the, and what the time and the order of all these events is. And people quickly jump to conclusions. Now, let me advise you, don't quickly jump to these conclusions. So, well, my favorite preacher on the radio, he says this, it must be true. Take your time to read and to study and see how the Lord in his word is is working these through. And, and, And be honest, there's nothing wrong with you saying, I don't know. I'm not sure how it pans out. I'm not too sure which view, uh, although I tend to one particular view, uh, I have a, a tendency, I have a, I, have a, uh, I have a bias towards that. But you don't have to be dogmatic when the Bible is clearly, not clear enough for you to be dogmatic in these matters. And so as we read from John 21 just now, that the Lord himself quashes false and, and hyper-spiritual ideas that some in the church wanted to see. 
But it did the rounds, even though Christ clearly rebukes it. In verse 23, in, in the verse 23, that the saying went abroad, but Jesus said, did not say unto him, he shall not die. If only those early church members that, that, that took uh, this hobby horse of an idea and spread it around the churches, if only they had gone back to the Bible and read that Christ said no, or at least Christ said, I didn't, did not say it. John writing, he did not say that. If only they were all strictly sola scriptura Christians, then they would have read chapter 21 and they would have realized, no, 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 that's not what the Word said. And such a rebuke could also be levied against the Roman Catholic Church in, in many of their superstitious uh, matters. And I consider something that is very recent. You might think it's a, it's a long and old and distant heresy, but it isn't. It's very recent. 1951, I believe, is a, is a, a recent dogma. And a dogma is an official doctrine uh, from the Roman Catholic Church concerning Mary. It was declared that Mary did not die. Mary did not die, no. Mary was taken bodily up into heaven and did not taste death. And that seems to be a logical conclusion of, 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 of further Roman Catholic uh, blasphemy and error because they're saying, well, if she was sinless, which she wasn't, she needed a saviour. She said it herself with her own words. If only they would go back to the scriptures and read what exactly was said. But because they've added to these stories a maid of Mary, uh, a goddess, they made of Mary a, 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 a saviour, even working alongside Christ, again, the blasphemy of it. It seems logical to them that, that Mary didn't just die and her body rot in the grave. There must have been something special that happened to her. But none of that is supported by the Scriptures. The few exceptions that there are in the Scriptures we read about. We read about Enoch in Genesis. We read of Elijah and the chariots of fire. We read about the Lord Jesus Christ. We do read of the apostles raising people from the dead and the Lord doing the same. But they are the exceptions. The rule is that the wages of sin are death and the graveyards are full of the proof that we're sinners and that we physically die. Uh, the question is, do we have everlasting life in our soul because we've trusted in Jesus? We trust him. We trust his word. What his word says about us, that we're sinful. What the word says about him, that he is the only saviour for uh, the forgiveness of our sin. And that we're to call upon him and to believe him and to follow him. Are, are we following him? Are we believing him? Because that is what makes the difference. Of all the graveyards filled uh, with, with dead bodies, it's those that had their souls regenerated that had called upon the name of the Lord, that are now in heaven. And all the rest, their souls are in hell. So going back to the Bible to understand all these matters, biblical Christianity is not focused on Mary at all. She's there, most blessed of women, yes, she bore the Savior. But the Bible and biblical Christianity is Christ-focused. It's looking at Christ and even Christ himself says that we are to look unto him. 
So whose kingdom this is? Secondly, who will see God's kingdom come? We understand some of those people there. And, and thirdly then, the kingdom's power that is revealed. What is this, this power of, of the kingdom? And then again, I want to bring us back to those uh, two parallel passages, one in Matthew and one in Luke, that we'd understand something of the wording that the Lord uses. And so these don't contradict each other. It's like if you have three journalists listening uh, to somebody giving a speech about something, they're writing things down, and one aspect of what he's saying in one particular sentence is written down, and, the other, uh, the other, and a few words are missed over, and, and another journalist would write something down and understand it, and, and it would be slightly different. Of course, that's, that's on a human level, but on a, on a level of the inspired scriptures, again, there are different points. The Lord has used four different men... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to give four different, not, not, not different, but four different aspects of the same happenings, of the same situation, of the same historical happening, that we would have a fuller picture. If I'm to stand uh, at the bottom of a mountain, then I will have one image of that mountain. And is that a correct image? Well, it is from that point of view. But if I go 100 miles that way and then look straight ahead from a slightly different angle, and then I will see something else of the mountain, I will see something more of its shape, I'll see more of the context with other mountains. If I go onto the other side of the mountain, then I may see different cliff faces, different shapes, different crags, and yet it is the same mountain. And in that way, we understand uh, that the use of four different authors, and yet all the penmen of the Holy Ghost. And so let, let us not ever think that, oh, this is contradicting each other, that, 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 that there's one word used here and one word used there. Uh, you bring them together to understand what is it that the Lord is saying. So let us do that. So we have Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 we're preaching from this evening. Then we have Mar uh, Matthew 16 and verse 28. And we'll read that now. Verily, I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That phrase, taste of death, is a Hebrew a phrase for just dying. Uh, Luke 9 and 27. But I tell you of a truth... And that is the same expression, verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. I bring those together with that. Well, it's, it's the same thing. And so as we try to understand these verses, as they're, they're pointing to something very important, so there are those that will not die till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power or the Son of Man coming in his kingdom or till they see the kingdom of God. So there are the subtle differences, but the same thing. But when we read the Reformed commentators on this verse, which we are drawn to understand this text on its own terms. Because there are various steps of, of, of revelation, we could say, or, or, or dispensings of this glorious and powerful kingdom that are seen in the following immediate following verses in this chapter in, in this chapter and in the remainder of 
this gospel account, but also in the remainder of the New Testament scriptures that are there that give us an understanding of, of, of what this coming uh, with power is of the kingdom of God. And this is what many of the Reformed commentators say. It is not just, let us just jump to a conclusion. Let let us see what the Bible is then revealing about the glorious power of the kingdom of Christ. Because only six days later we have, firstly, that Christ's body is transfigured. That the something of his divine glory is revealed and only only to a few witnesses. The living word of God revealed in his glory, that glory which is not revealed as, he's, as the Son of God is clothed in the flesh of the Son of Man. But we do see something of his power there also. And what do we see of his power when we're going to go into the details, God willing, another time as we, as we go into the, the, the transfiguration of Christ. But the power of his saving work in the lives of Moses and Elijah, and not only that, his sustaining power, that he has sustained them, he has sustained Moses, or Moses' soul, in life for 1,500 years plus, and Elijah for 800 years plus, and he's still sustaining them now, and they are part of that kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of God is from heaven, it is within us. So Christ's body transfigured certainly gives something of the glory of the power of the kingdom of God. But secondly, Christ's body is crucified. Christ's body crucified. And so we would go towards the end of of Mark's gospel and see the, the crucifixion. And what do we see therefore? We see... We see Christ in his, in his human weakness being the Lamb of God. And we've mentioned this before, in his absolute weak state. As a man, as a condemned man, as a man that had been brutally beaten by the soldiers and, and physically nailed to that cross. And yet in the greatest weakness that he would have. I mean, he couldn't physically even move. He could barely breathe in the situation he is. But in that great weakness that he had, the power of the kingdom of Christ that went forth in conquering, triumphing over death and over the devil and over all the enemies of God's people on that cross. Here was no display of, of muscle and might and military power. This is the Son of God himself in his, in his weakest but at his most strong. The glory of Christ dying as the king of the Jews, exalted high upon that cross, dying as a king to enter in to the fullness of his kingdom. Much more could be said on these points, but we will move on as we consider further that the kingdom of God come with power. So in his transfiguration, we see, in, in his crucifixion, we see, but of course three days later, in Christ's body being resurrected. Again, the power of the kingdom of God being revealed in his glorious resurrection. He has conquered sin, he has conquered death, and he has conquered Satan. And the proof is, is that he breaks, as it were, out of the grave and enters into an everlasting life in the flesh. Powerful miracle that he resurrects his own body 
and reminds us, believer, that he will resurrect our bodies. That the bringing to new life of your soul was merely the first step. He will resurrect also your body from the grave. But also Christ's body is exalted because that resurrected body of, of Christ, he having freed himself from the shackles of the grave, he spends 40 days appearing to his disciples, to his people, and then continues that exaltation as he ascends heavenwards, sends all the way into heaven for his glorification and for his coronation, where Christ even now sits on the throne of God and again something of the power of that heavenly kingdom that he rules all things, he directs all things from heaven and through his church. The church being an aspect of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God come with power every time that a sinner calls upon the name of the Lord and is saved. There's the power of the kingdom of God expressed in saving a sinner from the power and the grip of Satan and bring them into the glorious and eternal kingdom of Christ. There is something to be said about the power of the kingdom of Christ that it is a never-ending kingdom. There are kingdoms and there are empires throughout the world that have boasted of how, of how long that they would survive, how great they are, considering the, 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 the old Qin in, uh, dynasty 2,000 years ago, uh, considering the, uh, even older than that, we have the various Babylonian empires and the, the empire of Rome, which in some ways continues in the Roman Catholic Church, but certainly not with the same power that it once had. What about the British Empire? Certainly in Canada we understand something of, of the British Empire being the remnant of it and now an independent nation. But again, people said this. They said it in a twofold way. They said the sun would never set on, on the British Empire. And what they meant was that in every part of the globe there was some part of the British Empire. So the British Empire somewhere always had the sun shining on it as the, as the earth uh, revolved. But it was also had this meaning. And it was a more arrogant and proud-filled, pride-filled meaning, is that the British Empire would never end. But that's not true because the kingdoms of this world will all end, they will all cease. And they will be replaced. If we were to continue to read in Daniel, that they will be replaced by this powerful kingdom of God. And if we go to Daniel and go to Daniel chapter 7, if you would turn with me. Daniel chapter 7 says something of what the prophet received in a night vision 600 years before what we're reading here in chapter 9. 600 years prior to this, Daniel the prophet receives a vision. So chapter 7 of Daniel verses 13 and 14. Again, the similar language, similar pointing. What is he pointing to? Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be 
destroy. That's the, the great difference. Because this kingdom is based upon the power of an everlasting life, it is a, a heavenly and therefore an eternal kingdom that is established within people, within those who are saved. And that those that were saved have an everlasting life. So the kingdom is seen in every believer that has the spirit of Christ within them. Which brings us to our fifth a display of the kingdom of God come with power. As after the Lord ascends up into heaven, there are ten days later that Christ's spirit is poured out. Christ's spirit is poured out. That kingdom of God came also with great power. These are all examples of kingdom of God coming with power. But it came in great power when the promise of the Father is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So if Christ being raised from the dead, raising himself from the dead, 40 days he's with his disciples, he ascends into heaven, and then we have those 10 days until the day of Pentecost. When the apostles and the church are filled with the Spirit of Christ. And we read that in Acts chapter 2. And what is it? By that power of the kingdom of Christ, we see him ensuring that the Great Commission will go forth. That the Great Commission, that work of increasing the kingdom, his kingdom on earth. And we see that as power is given to the apostles, it's given to the early church And all of this power then revealed in the miracles, confirming the truth of the word of the gospel that is given to them. Confirms the preaching, confirms their authority as apostles, and confirms the truth of the doctrines, the teachings of the kingdom of God. Again, with great power. What was this? This was a small as it were, a sect of the Jews, and the Jews were doing their best to destroy it. They were doing their best to stamp upon it. The Romans didn't like it either. They would, they would have it destroyed as well. And yet the power of this kingdom was unsurmountable. It could not be defeated because it was a heavenly power, and it was a power that went forth from the Son of God himself, from that work on the cross. From the breaking forth from the grave, there is life, a new life. And that's still going forth as the Lord is building his church, as he's building his kingdom of grace. And sixthly, and I think almost finally, we see Christ's judgment upon Jerusalem. Again, a display within the lifetimes of these people that we're looking at, display of power that goes forth. And this is the power of Christ's judgment and a fulfilled prophecy that takes place. 70 AD, 69 and 70 AD. Luke 21 is here is the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Jerusalem. Luke 21 verses 5 to 6. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said that is Christ. As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So of the temple and of the inner courts, there is nothing left standing. Even that wailing wall is not a wall of the main building of that time. 
And all of that happened in Jerusalem. It happened to the temple a mere 40 years later. A mere 40 years later, well within the lifetime of many of them, certainly in the lifetime of the Apostle John, who was the youngest of his disciples. Many other disciples had already given their lives for the gospel's sake and saved their lives by doing so, to use the words of Christ in verse 35 of the previous chapter. But there the Roman army came, and according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, a million souls were destroyed in Jerusalem. Through hunger, starvation, through, through the battle uh, from, the, from the walls, but also when the, when the Roman army entered in and showed no mercy. No mercy. And that was the judgment of Christ upon Jerusalem and upon the temple. A powerful judgment. And that's the contrast that we have the power of Christ's judgment and the weakness of unbelief. It left them exposed to the judgment of Christ. If only they had known the word. You see, they did not actually know the word. They had religion, oh, and they had rules, but they did not know the word of God. They had the 39 books of the Old Testament. They had the example of Abraham believing the word of God to the very letter. They had all the example of the, of the patriarchs. They had the words of instruction in Proverbs. And all of them are saying how important the word of God and how they were to believe it. And yet many did not believe the scriptures. If they had only believed the scriptures, then they would have been warned, they would have been convicted, and they would have believed. But they did not believe his word, we see there in New Testament times. And they did not therefore believe the miracles that he wrought to confirm his word. A teaching that he told them. I said, you believe not me, then believe the works that I do. But they were like children at a magic show. That's what they were going for, the spectacle. They were going for the drama. But they would not listen and they would not believe. And so there was nothing left open to them. Rejecting Christ and rejecting the word of Christ meant that they had to be the recipients of Christ's judgment because they'd already rejected Christ's mercy. Maybe that's a description of, of your soul. You have rejected Christ's mercy. Well, then you will be the recipient of his judgment. And it's a solemn, unpleasant thought, but may it be an unpleasant thought that will force you to flee to Christ and obtain mercy and obtain life and enter into his kingdom. And so as we've considered now, I think the seventh point is a final point is Christ's powerful revelation of his kingdom to a sinner. 
Because what we're talking about now is the saving work, the sanctifying work, the supplicating work, the the succoring work of Christ towards his people. And not only in those 33 and a half years of earthly ministry, but even now as he is in heaven, as he's sitting on the throne of God, he is God, he is the king of his church, he's the king of all nations, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, he's the king of Trudeau, he's the king of whoever now rules in, in, um, in Westminster. It's easy to lose track these days. He's the king of everyone. But this this powerful display of Christ and his work is going forth still in the Great Commission, even today and until that he does return. And if you can say that you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not saying you're some super saint. I'm not saying you can look at yourself and you seem to be, you seem to be overflowing with the graces of the Holy Ghost. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you have a hope, you have looked unto Jesus And you have a hope that you are saved because he has promised that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Lord, I have called upon thy name and therefore thy promise can never be broken. Thy word can never be broken. And so you have a a hope. You have therefore personally experienced the power of the kingdom of God in your life. It has come with power into your life, into your hard heart into your unbelief and you have experienced it before you tasted physical death you too have been brought into this glorious kingdom of everlasting light, love and life and you will not taste hear this you will not, you cannot taste of the second death which is the lake of fire And you too will see Christ. And you see, will see him coming in power. And you will see his eternal heavenly kingdom replacing all other temporary, earthly, pride-filled and rotten kingdoms. That there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And so all of those things that we've looked at, those seven aspects, and, the, and that last one is really, is really the, the Great Commission going out, the kingdom of Christ being built and being filled. Trust we've answered that question. The kingdom of God coming with power. But let me close with a personal question to you this evening. Which kingdom are you in? Which kingdom are you in? So we have the kingdom from heaven, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that belongs to God and is ruled by Christ, who is God, or the other kingdom. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of cursing, a kingdom that itself will be cast into the lake of fire with its king. Who is your king then? Because depending on your answer to which kingdom in kingdom you are in also says, who is your king? Is it the king of glory, the saviour, the glorious one, or is it the devil? Who not only hates the king, the king of light, but hates your soul. 
Here's the difference then. If you are unrepentant of your sin, if you, are, if you are still in your sin and you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in the kingdom of Satan. And what a tyrant you have for a king that looks and looks forward to the destruction of your soul forever. Or you repent of your sin and you enter into the kingdom of light with the Lord loves his people and he gave himself up for his people and he ever lives to make intercession for his people and he has a glorious future that he has made for his people. We can't get two more extreme kingdoms and yet we're all born into that one kingdom of the devil. But through the preaching of the gospel tonight... You've been reminded once again that there is a glorious and an eternal kingdom and you are invited, but you're also commanded. Leave that kingdom. Leave your sin. Leave the power of Satan. Repent of all that which is between you and God, which is always sin, your sin, and believe on the person of Jesus Christ and the promises of the gospel and all that is hopeful and you will enter in to the kingdom. He will bring you in. He's calling you now through the preaching to enter into his kingdom. Why would you stay in that kingdom? Is it because you're mad? Yes. Sin maddens the heart and the thoughts and the desires. Is it because you're blind? Yes, he has blinded you. This slave master, this Satan has blinded you to your need of Jesus Christ. And yes, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Oh, how he loves ruling your corpse. But the word of life and power goes out tonight. Don't rely upon yourself or upon your own feeling, or upon your own ideas. There is power in the blood. There is power in the gospel. There's a power as the, out, as the invitation and the command goes out this evening. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. And the devil has no power over you. For in repenting, you're believing the word of God. Remember this, the future belongs to Christ. He has it all in his hand. Who would not want to love and serve the king of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and have that life and that bliss-filled existence with Christ and with his people. Call upon him. Although you be in the midst of that kingdom, shout out. Shout out to him. King Jesus, here am I in my sin and in my unbelief. Save me. And he will continue to invade that kingdom. The gates of hell will not resist his work. They cannot. He's been plundering it for 6,000 years. May God plunder your soul tonight and give you to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Lord, our Saviour, we give thee thanks and praise for the glorious gospel and for the Christ of the gospel. We, we praise thy name 
for these wonderful gospel miracles of taking sin, dead and blind and mad sinners and drawing them into the kingdom of King Jesus. Oh, what a powerful and glorious kingdom it is. What a powerful and glorious Savior. May thy word go forth this evening. May it work faith in the souls and the hearts of the hearers. And may they therefore be bound by cords of love to the King of Light and be delivered from Satan and sin. And thou shalt receive all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.